Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore. Our usual co-host, Kyle Helson, has the day off today because, of course, we have a guest in for an interview. So, uh, of course, the usual stuff, subscribe to the podcast, five-star ratings and sharing it. Uh, those are all great. Thank you so much. But really sharing it is, we so appreciate that. If you are uh, passing our advice on to people, uh, with or without credit, we understand. Um, <laughs> if you want to share the podcast up on um up on a forum or something like that. Uh, that is so fantastic. Thank you so much for all of that. And of course, remember that we are ad-free. So if you'd like to donate and support the show that way, empiricalcycling.com slash donate is the way to go. We have some show notes up on the website. We do talk about a couple papers in this one. I will link all of them. And uh, actually, the main one is going to be, uh, is actually open text. So you can definitely head in and read that and form your own opinion as we always encourage. Uh, if you have any coaching or consultation inquiries, of course, that is our main business because the podcast is free. Um, you can reach out empiricalcycling at gmail.com. Of course, we are taking on athletes at all levels. We are negotiable, of course, for students and professional athletes because we know some pros don't make a lot of money. Uh, that's cool. We understand. We want to work with you anyway. Um, and of course, if you have any extenuating circumstances, uh, please reach out and we are happy to uh, find you a good coach and a good fit at, uh, at the right budget for you. And of course, if you just want to reach out once and have a consultation, we can do that too. Our time is your time and we will answer any questions you have. We will look at your training. We will uh, give you training advice. We will help you uh, sketch out a season or something like that. We'll talk about periodization, uh, lifting, or whatever you uh, want to discuss with us. We're happy to do that. So thanks so much for all of your inquiries, by the way. Um, and of course, uh, up on Instagram, at Empirical Cycling, of course, uh, we have the weekend AMAs up in the Instagram stories. And uh, give me a follow there and check out the stories. Uh, I've been told that they're fantastic because uh, they're really, really short. <laughs> you know, it's better than Twitter, but, um, you know, not as good as a podcast in terms of duration. So for a lot of people, it's just the right um, just the right amount in the middle. So thanks, everybody, for participating in those. Those were a lot of fun for me, too. Um, and uh, now as we get into the interview, uh, I want to apologize first for the audio quality again. Sorry, we are working these bugs out. So uh, my mic clips a little bit, and as a recovering audiophile, that really bugs me. Uh, probably doesn't bug a lot of people, so I'm jealous of you for that. Uh, I was not getting any feedback that I was clipping so uh, on the recording, so... Um, you know, otherwise I would have adjusted my levels, obviously. And our guest had to uh, had to go find um, refuge in a cafe, and um, of course that means there's a little bit of background noise. I've gated him, uh, tried to get, gate the background noise, but of course it comes in and out. Um, you know, I'll I'll do my best as I can with that, um, but. It's a really good interview, and I thought we had a great conversation, so we're not going to take another crack at it. It is what it is. Um, so, obviously, this is the uh, 2021 Welsh Road Race Champion. He's a coach at Kilowatt Coaching, his own co coaching company. Uh, we discuss his recently completed education at Loughborough University and some of the research he did uh, on potentially supplementing citrulline. Um, is there a result? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. Um so, of course, we also, uh, the main reason that we got together for this podcast is uh, recently a paper on bias and research results came out. And, um, and you know, he's done stats a lot more recently than I have. And so we wanted to discuss that. So we go into that paper quite a bit. And we also get into things like lactate and critical power and warming up and all sorts of other usual stuff that coaches have in conversations. So um, I was, uh, I was caught a little bit on the back foot on some of these topics because, um, you know, I like to do a little bit of research. I'm not so quick on my feet, so that definitely comes through and I apologize for that. Um, but, um, 
yeah, so our guest is really, really smart. He's really cool. Uh, we have a really good conversation. The more I talk to him, the more I like him. And I think the more everybody hears from him, the more you're going to like him too. Uh, and of course, he is a coach. So if you want to reach out to him, you can do so at Kilowatt Coaching up on Instagram. He says that's probably the best way to do it. Um, and uh, of course, uh, you can reach out to him. Um, you know, his name is Marinus Peterson. And um, I'm really looking forward to everybody hearing this conversation. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it. And I'll see you on the other side. One of the things that I was struck by uh, as we as we talked is that um, you know as we chatted, I felt more like I was talking to a peer, and that's definitely kind of your um, you know your education coming through. But also, I think it was interesting in that um, there was some questioning of the education because um, you know you had said that there's a lot of emphasis on like high intensity training and stuff. Um, where at the same time, you know, in your experiential um, um, I don't know, experience, I guess. Wow. Let yeah. Me try that again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, and so in your experience with training, you find that, you know, violating the principles that you were taught in school actually are somewhat beneficial. And I, I really appreciate that level of doubt and also just trial and error. Um, so tell me about uh, your education and, um, and, you know, the kind of the strengths of it and uh, why, you know, what's the emphasis on high intensity interval training uh, coming out of the best uh, exercise physiology university in the world? Um, Well, like, first of all, like one one thing I do, what what makes you start doubting it or makes you start questioning things is when you can see you're you're at the, the best place in the world. These are all the leading experts. And, you know, they even work together in the same office and you can still ask them a question about something and they can all give you a different answer. They still don't quite agree. So like you could ask them, say like, do you think there's anything to sort of training with low glycogen stores? Do you think that can drive adaptation at all? And, and some, yes, two experts who you know, work in the same lab, literally one would say, oh, I think, I think there's, there's, there's something in this fuel for the work required. And, and they, they're really on something and then equally my supervisor he thinks there's nothing in it at all he thinks it's all a hoax and he thinks it's bullshit <laughs> and, and and they literally work together on the same projects published studies together done research in training and nutrition um so yeah that like we sort of realize at some point you, you learn all this stuff and and then but you do have to be critical about it and make your own mind up and, and there are some things that people are more more agree, agreeing on that, and some things that still really divide all the top experts in the world. So um, that was, yeah, that's been, that, that, it was really helpful in that. And, and, and they are, and, and you do get taught, especially as you go along the course, to be, be more critical and to, and to every time you look at a paper, think like, actually, who, you know, who was the, what was the study design here? Does that really can you really interpret the results of that and apply it to the population you're looking at and 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 that's kind of a skill that they they do um they do try and encourage and they do teach you but i think Mm -hmm. perhaps as we'll go into more that that's that's still almost underdone um (laughs) and there's and there's other (laughs) there's other aspects to to consider when you're looking at scientific research that and the limitations of it that you, that isn't quite understood or emphasized enough. 
Well, you said, uh, well, let's start on the positive note first before we kind of get into what we had Oh, yeah, before we slate here. it, yeah. So what, <laughs> Just what get do you, slating what, it. Yeah, what do you find that people actually really agree on? Um, one thing is that uh, high training volumes, whether you're a rat or a mouse running on a hamster wheel or whether you're a world tour cyclist, that high volume of training generally correlates with better endurance performance. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say that's, that's one thing that's pretty constant. Um, and then I'd say even that, and then for, again, that for elite performers, most, uh, with the exception of one thing I, per, uh, well, thing I was listening to recently, that generally seems to be a consensus that most of your training needs, if you're an elite athlete, needs to be below your first, very easy and below your first threshold. Mm -hmm. um, and I, the last thing I'd say is that, yeah, for, for high intensity exercise, you need carbohydrate. Um, I guess that that would be so. Yeah. But yeah. Well, well, no one you really bring up disagrees about that. <laughs> well, you bring up uh, first <laughs> threshold, um, and in our first attempt at this recording before uh, before internet connections took a poo, um, I think um, you you know you had talked about um, how uh, how it felt like the first like LT one was the only real threshold, and that you know LT two or whatever we want to call it is actually um, is is highly controversial um and so why, why don't you yeah. tell me a little bit about about that and we can try to unpack it because i think this is going to be really really interesting for people to hear about okay so um what what we got in one of our lectures we are actually presented with um like this is how sports science does it um which is you you have three zones your first zone is from you know rest to your to your like first lactate threshold which is um, what you should apparently do you know most of your, your your easy aerobic training in and then you've got your second uh, when second threshold which they they call critical power which is what what they use um, and then and then you should do your high intensity intervals above your critical power and you should minimize almost at all costs time spent between your first lactate threshold and your critical power and then they they mapped that against like Andy Coggan zones and I, I don't even think they did it quite correctly and so they even put all they put like threshold training was all below CP so FTP and everything was below CP and they just and and they almost they well, they like they just completely take the piss out of like sweet spot tempo they just lump it all into they just call it oh it's all tempo or some pointless like rubbish like that and it all just gets kind of like lumped together um and then yeah and they talk about how you kind of get magic adaptations that happen above your cp which they are treating as being something very a very definite point um and that there's no point training harder than your LT1 unless you're going to go above CP because it just induces more fatigue but no more training benefit and um, and yeah yeah that's, so that's that's a summary of, of, of what that yeah that's that's really interesting um, <laughs> yeah because I think um, you know our, our our experience in the real world as cyclists and cycling coaches uh, is actually quite contrary to that um, and 
and you know, I think I think you had said in, in take one that um, that basically are it was something like there are so many definitions. I'm I'm really going to badly paraphrase you now. I'm sorry. Uh, there yeah, are, like, there are so many it. definitions of LT2 um, that it's that it almost doesn't seem like it's possible it to actually measure. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I did put Definitely. out a podcast a couple uh, weeks, months ago now. Um, basically, I, I basically bashed um, all lactate threshold tests. And that that's not to say I was in favor of critical power, but I was just saying that if we look at the power curve, um, like an athlete's full power curve for, you know, last 365 days usually captures most max values. And usually somebody's best performance is from the last year, which I think is pretty fair to do. We can actually see that threshold that everybody's looking for. Um, over it, we fatigue faster. Under it, we fatigue slower. It's really, really simple to like to look at and say, yeah. that's it. Um, and I think when we start to try to make physiological definitions to define that point, we can get lost because there's so much individual variation. Like I found that doing an MLSS test at mine, um, my lactate accumulation was actually greater than would be allowed in the MLSS, you know, like stabilization in, after first 10 yeah. minutes plus one millimole. I was actually like 1.6 or 1.8 millimoles after like, after like at 30 minutes or something like that. Um, so it didn't capture me because I'm badly aerobically trained. I have no mitochondria, so I cannot oxidize lactate or fat. I have I have three mitochondria. They're all in my, my fingers because I type all day. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, well, I, I think what you're saying though about how so you, you get your method depends on having a really complete power profile which is well or at least very good with lots of points so you can clearly see where you get that inflection point whereas yeah. but I think that's that's very difficult to do in I think a lot of these sports science studies they'll they'll be on sort of like very recreationally trained people who and and like even over the course of an intervention, their fitness is probably going to increase or change because they've they've just going in and doing each test is going to like make their their um, performance like change, yeah. and 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 then yeah, knowing where to pinpoint these durations is also going to be difficult because you don't know like what what would be appropriate length because they're of their yeah because yeah what their time to exhaustion would be so. It's, it's, it's kind of possible to do in the scenario of like with you and your athletes when you know what durations you need to test them on but in a like uh, like lab setting and the study conditions it's, it's it's near impossible I'd, I'd say to it, it is and that's that's one of the very difficult things about it is that um, you know in the real world we actually have the luxury of being able to aggregate performances. Um, where in a lab setting we don't, and I've um, I've been part of a, a cycling research group, and people are asking me like, oh, what's your, uh, you know, protocol for this? And I'm like, I don't have a protocol because I get to talk to the athlete, and I get yeah. to um, I get to look at their data, and that means I have if we're looking for LT1 and LT2, I have very easy ways to to go. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna test in like 15 watt increments 
more or less, and then we're going to measure lactate, and we're going to also measure RPE, and we're going to measure HRV, and we're going to do all these other things, and then we're going to look at the data afterwards and go, okay, this corroborates, because we, we have a point to start looking, you know? Um, and so mm -hmm. it, is, it is very much a luxury that I think, um, in some ways, can really stymie the quality of, you know, definitions of threshold in academia, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I think I think this would be kind of the turning point for sports science to be researched to be like more um, respected by coaches would be if it could they could start finding better ways of just gathering like race and training data from races and training that people are doing anyway and processing that rather than trying to go along the route of like which they've always it's always been that so everyone has to go into a lab everyone has to do exactly the same protocol and and and, and really like that's just not ecological and it's it's not gonna yeah lead, lead to finding the best information really yeah no and but um you know when it comes to actually uh having a good study protocol you know you want to control as many variables as possible mm. um you know, getting people in the lab having to do the same thing is would really be the gold standard. So it's a, it's a difficult choice to make because if we start taking like like actual performance data from on the road, we don't know if somebody's power meter is off one percent or eight percent, and we don't yeah. know if that was a max effort or not. Um, you know, we can assume it was probably ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of a max effort, like in a race. But there's fatigue to contend with, like you know, who knows? Um, so I think I think it's a difficult spot to be in. Um, and actually, that reminds me, I wanted to ask you: Did you see the um, the paper uh, Factor Artifact? Um, so like fifty years of controversy on critical power, or something like that. No, I've, I've, I'm not familiar with that, actually. Oh, no. man, I should have I sent that to you instead of the one that we're going to talk yeah. about. <laughs> but so, yeah, it sounds much more interesting. <laughs> it's, it's funny because what they do is they basically look at what they start taking, you know, like um, they take a bunch of performances. Um, mm. They take like three minutes, like 12, 15, 20, 60, 90, two hours, five hours, et cetera, et cetera. And they look at what's the critical power it, um, when we put in all of these data points, and they found that as as the long duration, uh, the longest duration of the critical power calculation goes longer, um, they actually are finding that the critical power is always like ninety five to ninety nine percent of their longest calculated value. Right. So it just gets lower the mm -hmm. longer. You extend the durations up, test durations out to. Yeah, and the response that's, that's to exactly it was interesting yeah. too because they were like, well, 3 and 12 or 3 and 15 minutes is pretty much the gold standard these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even though in the original Manot paper, they they had said that um, uh, the he, he I think he recommended that the longest or the, the minimum long duration was like 20 minutes or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas they say that's the the maximum, pretty much, and it's yeah, it's always three and twelve is the classic thing with critical power tests. Yeah, well, and I, I think it's funny too because I um, this might be interesting to hear your opinion on is um, mm. is because Kyle and I had actually recorded a podcast on on that paper uh, and then we scrapped it because yeah. it wasn't very well organized. Um, 
because <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't do enough prep for it. So it was t- it was a 10 minute tips and which should have been a Watts docs because Watts doc, I'll do like eight hours of prep for an episode where 10 minute tips, I literally do 10 minutes. Um, but one of the things I, I came up with an example of an athlete I have, um, who I've been coaching since like, you know, November, December, something like that. And I did a critical power calculation with him, which last year, 2020, uh, 2021, um, came out to about 403 Watts or something like that. And his FTP was like 360, 370. This year, his FTP is actually 400 Watts. Um, and so like, it was an interesting, and his critical power calculated this year is the same. Yeah. Um, and so I thought it was a really interesting example of the performance coming up to meet the calculation, but that's not going to be the case with everybody. And ironically, it's because he's done a lot of middle intensity training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 that all makes perfect sense to me. And perhaps even you could use critical, start to see and use critical power as something like VO2 max, where it's like it represents the ceiling of how good you could be. Whereas your your threshold, or your, where your FTP is more like, this is what you can actually do mm-hmm. in the real world, and that's why it's functional. So, that would be yeah. actually a really interesting idea. Yeah. Um, well, now that I've got some world tour data, I actually I can do that calculation and see if anybody it, yeah. violates or exceeds that. Um, although, yeah, I, I doubt it, but um, maybe, maybe some folks can't. Sure. Um, but uh, actually, this kind of gets into statistics because I think because uh, this kind of will work into the paper that we're going to talk about um, initially um, is um, whenever I see people doing like correlation studies on whether this threshold matches with this threshold and stuff like that, like MLSS with critical power or LT2 with the Dmax method or whatever it is, um, yeah, I usually see things like Bland Altman plots, um, and you know mm. if they're looking for you know, a distribution, they're, they're basically looking for the distributions to line up and like be, you know, our 95% confidence interval overlaps with this 95% confidence, confidence interval or something like that. Uh, I'm not, yeah. I'm not entirely sure though, cause my stats are really rusty. Last time I took stats was like 2012 or something like that. So, um, I've done it slightly more recently. <laughs> yes, you have, which is why I think it would be interesting, uh, if you wanted to comment on, kind of those correlational studies on finding that these things are at least statistically not significantly different. Yeah, so I mean, the, this paper that we were looking at here um, is quite, yeah, quite shocking really. It just shows how, how bad of an issue it is in research that you've got way more um, like results that are just like only just statistically significant mm-hmm. so like and and that so like if, if 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 you just if everything was in an ideal world it would it would follow a normal distribution like when you but what you can see with that actually happens is you've got like a massive spike of values that of like studies that are coming out with just like only just statistically significant on either side of the distribution and then almost nothing coming out as as like you know just proving the null hypothesis mm-hmm. um although when I, I thought about this more and i thought there there is kind of an argument for why that might actually be the case and and it would be that like what you wouldn't design a study 
if you didn't think like that um, that nothing was going on like you wouldn't be like oh, I'm going to design a study to show that there is no correlation or like between people's favorite color and their gender because mm -hmm. there isn't anything going on so it makes some sense that that you see that and and I guess what aligns with that is that the the value the, the like the oh, what's what's the word like how the the problem in medicine it was was very similar like uh, the the occurrence of this problem was very similar in medicine to what it is in sports medicine so it's it's not like it's if if it is a problem it's not unique to sports science oh definitely um, yeah well because the paper is uh, let me check my notes here real quick. It is, where did I write down the title? I swear, I swear I did. Oh, the, the bias for statistical significance in sport and exercise uh, medicine. Um, and yeah. I think, and I read the paper, and I, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that they note um, registered papers, I think is what they called it. Um, so it, yeah. I think, um, I didn't look this up because it is basically what they talked about. What kinda, I kind of got mm. the picture of like, they, ha they register a method, um, a methodology, then they carry it out and they report it regardless of what result they get. And it seems yeah. that, it seems that... Um, Registered reports, wasn't it? That's what they call oh, yeah. it. Oh yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. it. It seems like the actual um, non-significant results they get are much more common when they actually do papers yeah. like that. It gave the example of when they've done it in psychology, mm -hmm. they got uh, half as many positive results, where a positive result would mean that there was something going on. Yeah. And they said that since they've been doing that in sports science, they've suddenly got, or sports medicine, they've suddenly just got a lot less papers being published. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I think, but I, I think that's that's a good a good thing, like that, because just loads of papers being published that aren't like scientifically rigorous it just just making everything more confusing for anyone mm -hmm. everyone but then at the same time you want to encourage more research to being done and it, it's, it's similar to how like a lot of like a lot of the, there are a lot of like smaller universities from around the world who who are trying to publish research and and we want to encourage that so that you're not so that they they can like break their way in if you like yeah. and their research can be published but on the other hand you, you want to be able to distinguish between like less rigorous research and more rigorously controlled research that we're getting from universities like Loughborough mm -hmm. um, and just just a really weird crazy idea I had was if you could if you could allow these sort of studies to be published but almost have like I don't know if you have this in the US, but in the UK we have like food hygiene stickers in front of restaurants. So you can have like, it'll say like, this is you know, zero to five food hygiene. Oh. And so like, a, a five is like, this place is really good. And any, but anything like above a two is safe to be open. So you could have like, oh, this from Mumbai University, this study on um, critical power is, is a three out of five. So like <laughs> food hygiene. So you, you can look at it, but just be aware that it might not be perfect. It might be, might, might be happen to be perfectly good, but then it's not necessarily gold standard research. Interesting, because I, th I think something like that, um, 
you know, has potential for uh, fuckery, um, for lack of a better term. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. I mean, it's sort of like um, it's sort of like it's sort of like uh, it has you know issues. Like peer review has issues too. You know, mm, yeah. um, it's like like how many memes have we seen on Twitter and Instagram about reviewer three? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, you know, so I think, I think at some, in some level that's, you know, that could potentially be really good. Um, but I think at some level that could potentially, um, be terrible, yeah. <laughs> be really terrible, especially if whoever's assigning, because, because you're not going to have amazing criteria that is able to really capture everything, I think, for, um, you know, for study quality, because, um, you know, I could think of a couple studies that I bet would get a four or a five rating that I yeah. would think actually deserve like a two. Well, this is where I think you'd have to have, you know, a centralized like governing body almost. <laughs> that, 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 and, and the conditions are laid out and like this is how it's done. Yeah, it's, and, it's and flawless with the UCI done, and the IOC, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That just, <laughs> that proves how it's, it's, it can never be perfect. And yeah. Yeah. You always have to make up your own mind, ultimately. Yeah, but I think um, why don't we start with why do you describe that abnormal distribution from the paper? Uh, I think I believe it was Figure Three. I, my my Figure my, Three. My work laptop's closed right now, but um, okay. it's the one that has the. Uh, it's like got the two camels humps in it. Yeah. So, if if any of you listening know what a normal distribution looks like, it's about it's sort of like. It's a bell. It's a bell bell-shaped curve, whereas, and and so what is classed is statistically significant when you put in your, you put in your so you put in your z values into this distribution, and a, a z value is like a way of kind of making what you've got fit onto this distribution because, like it could be making your mean all means fit onto one distribution to like sort of scale it scale it to that um, and then if you've got so if, if it is yeah normally distributed the on average that the, they should all yeah come out in this bell-shaped curve um, whereas what you find well, and so then well, yes things that are statistically why don't we describe yeah, yeah, what the, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Why don't we describe what the bell-shaped curve would look like, or what it would signify, before we describe this one? Um, and I'm yeah, going to put okay. this. I'm going to put yeah. this one up in the show notes. I'll, I'll screen grab it and put it up there. So I think because in the middle of the distribution uh, would be all of our null values, like we don't find mm. a statistically significant um, difference, and so therefore we cannot reject our null hypothesis. Is that right? Yeah, so that that should happen most of the time, because mm -hmm. um, most of the time there is there is nothing going on, and then the it should be much it should only be in five percent of cases where things fall outside the the main bit of that bell distribution that's in the middle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's what that's what should be the case. Is that right? And so what we have in this is it looks like we scooped out the middle, uh, like it's it, yeah. it literally looks like we took a hillside and we blasted out the middle to put a highway through it. Yeah, and then right at the edges where it should just be really thin little tails, mm -hmm. we've just got like spikes that are spiking really high, suspiciously, just outside of the arbitrary threshold, which has been.
drawn, which also happens to determine whether your study is going to get published or not, which seems very, very, uh, very suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. So, kind of what the paper talked about here is that um, they, I, I think. I think primarily most people are going to jump to this is probably, you know, people don't want to submit publishing insignificant results. You want to look like mm -hmm. you found something always. Um, and that uh, publications don't really want to submit insignificant results because who's going to reference an insignificant result? Very few people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although, I mean, I'd, I'd say there are situations where it, it can actually like it, it is useful like for example in my um uh finally a project that i did it was on whether using l-citrulline can improve your absorption of carbohydrate increase the oxidation mm -hmm. and we found oh and and then consequently improve preloaded time trial performance and we found that it, it did absolutely nothing and and i don't think that's a useful result a useless result I think that is a useful result because you can then discard it. You can think, actually, we won't pursue this any further. So, I mean, I think just looking for things, always finding things that say, this does work, this does do something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, it's a useful result to rule something out, but it's just not as exciting. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> so. I agree. And actually, speaking of L-citrulline, um, the first study I... I ever really read about citrulline experiments was in uh, Hans Krebs' discovery of the uh, uh, urea cycle. Um, okay. And so, cause I think there's it's there's been such a big shift from experiments done then to experiments done now, especially the way that the papers are written. Because I think, <laughs> at least in the biochem stuff, which is primarily what I read, um, well, especially from that era. Um, you know, they they do a lot of experiments, and they'll actually uh, they'll actually uh, put in a lot of the null result uh, experiments. But it's easy for them because they they're just like, oh, we're gonna take this tissue of kidney slice and we're gonna add this, this, and this. Yeah. And we're gonna see yeah. if if it evolves uh, CO2 and you know consumes oxygen or whatever, um, and metabolic blah 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 yields this and therefore we try to find this uh and you know it's it's not so easy anymore especially when we're talking about things that are not a small um enclosed cycle like the urea cycle you know we're looking at yeah. high level at whole body athlete performance and so that adds an, an additional um piece of difficulty because we could we could put you know, we could do that experiment again with like, you know, 25 amino acids or something like that or more at amino acid derivatives, yeah. you know? Yeah, whereas in, in, and you can just, yeah, do that quite quickly in contrast, like with a sports science study like this, mm -hmm. each, each person who is only one point has to go to the lab at least four times to compare two things and each of one of those sessions takes you know the researcher a whole day mm -hmm. so the, the how much time and and money is invested to to get a null result people don't want to do that yeah so that is it, it is an issue um and i have one more question on this which is i think um uh, I, I, th I think people who are in academia to some level or to pay attention to it are aware of p-hacking um, and so do you think that mm. this counts as some evidence of p-hacking? Um, mm, 
Not, I mean, I think probably it is happening in some cases, um, but like not necessarily. And, and like what I thought one interesting thing they said in the study was that it doesn't even, it's not even necessarily conscious the way that this, the bias occurs. Mm-hmm. And that, and that for, yeah, like you might even just mean that you keep on doing more measurements because you think, oh, that doesn't quite look right. And you just carry on like recruiting the study longer or re- redoing things. It's not necessarily even, even conscious. Yeah. Um, well, because this. So, I mean, it's 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 hard to tell because there's so many variables involved. Yeah. Well, I think they also mention um, small test groups and statistical power. You really don't have much until you start getting groups of like, you know, thirty or more. In yeah. A, in a, and that's you know just your experimental um, population, let alone the control. So you might be looking at sixty people, which is basically impossible to recruit sixty people in an area for studies like this. Uh, a lot of the time, especially. Yeah. You know, um, in rural UK, um, although I would expect there's a lot of cyclists out there you can recruit, but a lot of them are like, no, nah, I got my training schedule. I don't want to do this, or, which is probably what you heard a lot when you were recruiting people for your study, right? Yeah, yeah, this is exactly it. Like, if you can get 10, 20 people to do a, to do a study, like, that's that's quite, um, yeah, it's very rare. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So to get 60 is, is, is unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else about this paper jumped out at you? Any, anything make you scratch your head? Oh, I mean, the, mo- the most shocking of all the, the graphs, definitely that figure three. But um, what I always thought was, yeah, a little strange is how the, the peak is a lot higher for the Z values above 1.96 than it is below minus 1.96. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know if you got any better ideas, but I'm trying to think why that might be and why that because it's it's also different and the other way round from what you see in medicine in sports medicine. I wonder if you've got any ideas why why that might be because it's quite a significant difference, quite a big difference. Yeah. Um, I I have absolutely no idea. Um, I mean, the the, the only thing that I thought is that. Um, my only thought about that is like if we're looking at like a p less than 0.05 uh which is like hmm. ba- basically there's less than five percent chance that um that this happened to random chance but if we have so many studies where we get a p of you know 0.04 or something like that or 0.049 or whatever it is yeah. um how many of those like if we just take one twentieth of those, uh, which one twentieth of those actually have that um, that t test by random chance, like where they find an effect? That's where my brain goes. Yeah. So wondering, yeah, how many of them are genuine and how many of them are uh, kind of magic smoothed over that line? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would also want to. Yeah look at how many of these had untrained subjects or moderately trained or recreationally trained. Um, and I, I think also, um, I kind of want to ask you about something else too, which is what about um, studies on highly trained individuals? Because I know, I'm sure you've read as many of these as I have, um, hmm. actually probably more. Um, and so what, um, what in those protocols 
uh, stands out to you? Because a lot of these are actually in favor of high intensity interval training. So um, what do you think about the methods there? Well, I'd say first of all, it's uh, defining like highly trained or elite is, is just like, <laughs> just you, you decide, like, how do you want to do it? Like I've, I've heard it defined so many different ways. Like sometimes people say it's VO2 max over 60. Some people say it's over 55, right over from 70, that to yeah, over, over 70. Seen, yeah. Or sometimes even you have to have represented your country at international level. Mm -hmm. And then even that's a bit, you know, thin ice, because sometimes it could be the like Djibouti bobsleigh team is, you know, what the study is done on. Or sometimes it could mm -hmm. literally be on US Olympic team. And and so there's, I don't, I don't even, like, you have to almost you pick your definition of highly trained or elite depending on exactly what you're interested in and so like if, if you want you have to just be that specific I want I want to know what this what is the case in world tour cyclists and then do a study on world tour cyclists and I don't think you can like extract a study from just saying something is highly trained therefore means it applies to all um, elite applies to your population yeah so just yeah be really well, careful with that yeah i remember um reading a breakdown uh many years ago of um of a study that looked at uh i think it was altitude an, a particular altitude intervention um or something like that and for a lot of people the uh, their performance level went down and they heard there was one person where it like shot up um, yeah, and I remember the person break, breaking it down, saying, "You need to find out if the person you're training is the one whose performance improves by this." Um, yeah. But then I was also thinking, what if there's something else there, um, where um, you know this person's performance would have been different if we knew X, Y, Z about their off bike kind of stuff, like. Um, yeah. Like, like there are so many things to to consider here, and also like the motivation of the people in the study can also be a, a big factor too. Because like, if, so, if something's oh, too exhausted, yeah. like how do you yeah. tell when somebody's exhausted? Like, is it their pedal revs drop below fifty RPM because they can't pedal anymore? Like, yeah. is is this okay? Is this right? I don't know. <laughs> one one thing you just made me think of. Um, is because this L-citrulline study that I did, it because I always used to, I, I, I quite like the, I don't know if you ever had the you know, beetroot shots and, and buying it, thinking I'd mm -hmm. get a bit of a, a boost out of that. And then after doing my study and, and my supervisor teaching me that it work, kind of works in a similar mechanism to, to like nitro supplementation, L-citrulline could work on a similar mechanism. Um, I looked more into the, the literature around uh, nitrate supplementation on improving performance, specifically in that they said that in generally it doesn't work for more well-trained uh, people. Um, and then when I, but that some people do respond particularly well amongst elite athletes. So when I looked into this this one study, the the high the high responders were the people who actually had the lowest training volume. Mm. And so that perhaps what's actually going on is that train well training makes you produce more nitric oxide and have higher resting levels. Yeah. So the reason these people that responded better 
was actually because they just hadn't done enough training to optimize their their levels um, so that actually it's it is more when you say it's about training status it's literally is about training status as in how much training you've done whereas these these two individuals have been classed as elite because their genetics meant that they could reach 70 uh, vo2 max without doing actually doing that much training because mm -hmm. there are people like that who can who can yeah their their resting levels are just very high um but yeah that just made me think of that yeah that's interesting um well actually i i remember um i remember one of my athletes um was uh, was getting piss tested and um and i remember afterwards she remarked that the doping control person was like oh you're not on beetroot juice like she was the only person who's <laughs> oh she was the only color. person <laughs> yeah yeah wow that's um, amazing yeah i thought that yeah. was that was really interesting because i mean on some level like it, it's not going to like harm your performance um no it's just going to make you think that you're bleeding out of your urethra um the first time but that's that then you go then you go oh that's just that's just that's the beat color yeah we know um yeah yeah i think that's interesting though um but um you know i think um what, yeah one of the one of the interesting things about just training volume in general is that one of the adaptations that is expected that um that i think um we typically see in a lot of studies that are done when people are coming off of their off season because they they want a good yeah. baseline for everybody they they don't want uh, or you know like it's like um it's like one of those hit studies like the intermittent efforts versus the steady efforts uh typically people yeah. are coming off of their off season or they've just done a couple weeks of easy riding uh before they start doing the intervention and then it's like what increases vo2 max more and the answer is anything at that point you <laughs> absolutely anything yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah because i want to see what happens if we take somebody who's like really fit and then we give them a protocol mm -hmm. see if we can get them even more fit that's what i want to see you know um, yeah but and that's what everyone wants to know but in in that case it's almost the opposite problem that whatever you give them you're never going to get that much of a change and there's going to be so much noise in the data that maybe the intervention that worked better didn't get the better result because actually their coffee was a bit weaker the day before they did their performance <laughs> test <laughs> <laughs> like you can't you just can't yeah can't yeah just well, too much noise and i think i think that's actually um something to think about too is in the interpretation of all this science um what's the target audience because like i yeah. just googled hit training and um you know benefits or something like that and you know there's like vox articles like the title is obviously clickbait shit but how to get the most out of your exercise time according to science um and then there's something from the harvard school of public health um on high intensity interval <laughs> training and yeah they you know hiit fat loss in mice or something yeah. yeah increase strength and endurance improve health outcomes but it's not necessarily better than exercise other exercise formats um etc etc um well, it's nice they have that uh, that little bit in there about, but it you know, but that's the Harvard School of Public Health. It's not Vox, where you know it's a little more egregious of like we found the silver bullet to health and exercise and fitness. And so when it comes to the target audience, um, you know, do you think that some researchers have um, just general health of you know average the average person? in mind and it gets 
misinterpreted by people who want to improve high performance athletes or do you think that um, do you think that these things um, don't usually get too confused I think they definitely do by uh, less um, well-read coaches <laughs> um, <laughs> not to name names and, and I mean, <laughs> not to name names yeah uh, but then at the same time there definitely is a certain amount of crossover because I mean as you know from like biology you know, in a sense, everyone's made of the same chemistry to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I, I just, I think it's quite interesting what, um, you know, Sam Milan says that, you know, he, he works on everything from, you know, cancer patients to someone who's won the Tour de France twice. And he said, in a way to him, it's, 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 it's physiology either way. And it's, but, Obviously, you're dealing with very different beasts there. Yeah. Um, well, I, so there's there's definitely some stuff that can cross over, but you've just got to appreciate that. Um, yeah, you're dealing yeah. with very different. Yeah. Creatures. Well, I, I think um, I, I think his approach is really interesting because you know he's saying, can we use the some of the best endurance performances in the world, people with you know humongous mitochondrial density and yeah. you know, oxidative potential and you know VO2 max and all that kind of stuff can we use them to um, fight cancer um, yeah mean, the answer is going to be maybe obviously it needs some research mm-hmm. about it's being done um, but you know I think um, at some level uh, one of the things that's going to be missing is just genetics um, yeah the, just having that potential and because you know, in here's a preview of some of the the power values that uh, power values, <laughs> power files, power values. I've been looking at uh, in World Tour people is I'm astounded by the level of res- of physiological response by some people uh, on the training that they're doing because there are people yeah. doing doing more training who are um, you know who are you know, not as good, um, really. And, and I'm like, I'm looking at these going, this is, this is pure genetics. Like there, it's not, it's not the fact that this training is better or worse. It's just that they respond so much faster and so much better to the same training that I might see from a local cat too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's back to that thing that there's so many, variables with like elite performance that it's, it's hard to see what's actually going on mm-hmm. but on the other hand like I think elite performance is kind of a good scientific experiment in a way to inform what to do for general population health mm-hmm. and that like sort of way I think of it is I think like Formula One like pushing the boundaries of that like you then realise how to make things as good as they possibly can be and then that technology can kind of trickle down into your, making your everyday cars more aerodynamic so that you're yep. also saving more fuel going at 70 miles an hour on a motorway and mm-hmm. yeah my car has a dual that, clutch that could, and that's that comes as direct trickle down from motorsport yeah yeah, yeah. so I mean or, I think there's potential yeah um so I think this kind of gets to um, 
you know, what do you think is the balance? I mean, maybe there's no answer to this. Actually, there's definitely no answer to this. Um, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the balance between peer-reviewed literature and real-world experience? Especially for cyclists. I think um, taking in as much of the peer-reviewed literature you can is, is always a good starting point. Because, um, like, if 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 you're you're trying to you've got certain goals and you you've only got like you don't want to waste too much time trying every different training method that you possibly can, and and, and you know, to only find the thing that works for you when you're seventy, and oh, I finally found my <laughs> optimal training, and and I can maybe win the vet seventy fives in a few years. Like you, you want to try and make the best most educated guess you can as soon as you can but then equally if you if you start something and it's not working and it's clearly not working for you and 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 but it's what the science sort of sh says should be working it, it do doesn't really matter and if you can find something like we you know i mean you still shouldn't be doing it and if you can find something say like tempo work that a lot of literature might say really shouldn't work for you but you actually find oh i'm getting one percent stronger every every week, or ten percent stronger every month, or whatever it is. Then, if it, if it works, it works. So so do it. Like you, you don't have to like if, if yeah. If you see there's puddles, you know that it's rained, sort of thing. Like you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to like collect it in a bucket. Like. Well, maybe in the UK we know it's rained. Also, the tour might have come through if there's puddles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. Um, um, I had I had two questions to ask. Which one do I want to ask you first? Um, uh, why don't we start with um, why don't you talk about your own experience with training? Because um, in our first call, I think you had uh, you had a really interesting take on this because you I think you had said you had been doing a lot of uh, high intensity stuff, a lot of very very polarized stuff, and then um, you started doing some threshold work and you felt like you were getting faster. Did I remember that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty much it. So I, like, with with what I've been taught, um, and like, all, my, all the people I, yeah, my lecturers and, and kind of what we taught at, at, at Loughborough was that everything had to be, has to be, like your training has to be really highly polarised and, and that your endurance rides even have to be you know, quite a lot below LT1 and your high intensity intervals have to be like maximum eight minutes. Like that's like a magic number. It can't be more uh, longer oh, than eight minutes. Because of that Siler <laughs> study showing that eight minutes had the best outcome or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, 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 but yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 I just but when I started just doing you know super adventurous some some twenty minute efforts and some twenty minute over unders, where, whereas I found that you perhaps I did improve. Um, for a while doing the you know really polarized training it kind of came to a point where like not either seeing no improvement or seeing quite slow improvements and and I just sort of got used to that I thought oh, you know this is kind of the, le the level I'm at but then when I do find when I do the longer efforts like every time I go back and do them session by session I'm seeing improvements 
and, and so clearly that, that is something that, that does work for me. But then on the other hand, like, would it work if that's what I'd done from the start and if that's what all I ever did? And how much longer would I continue to improve by doing that kind of training? That's, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, so, I think that's um, I think that's really interesting because in my coaching experience now, um, what I find is uh, I, pretty much what Dean Gollett said a long time ago because I had suspicions. Then he was like, "Oh no, no, this is it." Like um, he said that no, there's no one intervention that's going to lead to your best cycling performance because I think it's interesting. Right. Cycling itself is interesting in that we need such a wide spread of ability to win a bike race, and so. You know, we're yeah. looking at somebody's natural sprint ability, their anaerobic capacity and muscle mass and things like that, RFD. Then we're also looking at VO2 max, and then we're looking at efficiency, capillary density, fiber type, uh, uh, metabolic capacity, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we're really looking at a giant spread of abilities. And what Dean had said yeah. was that there's no one training type it's endurance or if you get to max or threshold whatever it is that's going to get you to your best performances that you have to do everything um and the longer i do this the the more that that the more that that's true you know yeah and on every and what's also really hard particularly with bike racing more so than athletics or you know road running triathlon is that it's really hard to know like what are you even trying to achieve with your training because it's like, what's actually going to make me like, more likely to win that race? And then what's even going to make you more likely to win that race? It's going to even depend on what the weather's like on the day of your goal race or how the, your goal race pans out. You know, you could, like, you could do a lot of work on your critical power and, oh, and sorry, threshold, whatever it is. <laughs> sure. We, don't, we all know it's the same thing, yeah. We, don't, we know the same thing. And, and you could get that really good thinking that was going to be the critical determinant of your goal race and then actually when it comes to your goal race the wind's blowing really strong it ends up being really cagey and it comes down to like a burn up like in the last kilometer and actually you would have been spent your time much better just really hammering your anaerobic capacity and that would have made more of a difference to your race result or then yeah, well then, or like, yeah, I mean, there's oh, just, yeah. it's just well, like this, it's complete chaos, the bike race, isn't it? Yeah. There's, there's aerodynamics, there's weather, there's, there's like, there's the tactics, there's nutrition. And I think you, you get a lot of people thinking like, oh, all that really matters is your tactics and or all that really matters is how aero you are or how light you are or what your threshold are. And and they're all wrong because it is, is, is everything and it's just thrown into this like bundle and, <laughs> yeah, and, and you well, have no idea yeah they're all wrong because they're yeah, all right what's actually most important <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah um well uh i i think so uh one more question for now at least is um um what do you see as um, as happening in coaching that uh, that coaches could learn from science? Because um, the thing I've got penciled in here is because we just talked about training interventions, like you know, what do you what do you feel like works for you? Kind of doing a bit of everything, or kind of doing whatever. Um, but and you know, you you had said that um, you know if there's a puddle on the ground, you know it's rained, or there's a there's a peeve as less than. 0.05 that it's rained, I guess. Um, yeah. And so, what about like, 
you know, pre and post testing interventions because I think a lot of the stuff that I see in coaching and like popular intervals as they come and go over time, a lot of it's based on theory, but um, I don't see enough people actually doing a post-test to see, did this work? Because a lot of the time when it comes to things like, oh, we want to shift fiber type to type one, um, we have no way to test that. Um, per se, like, kind of, we have no way to test that. We, I'm sure we could come up with a couple. Um, well, muscle biopsy can get done, but it's, uh, and if, if <laughs> you want one, one done, that, yeah. Oh, Loughborough is the place to get them done, but um, yeah, quite quite difficult and very invasive yeah. and expensive. So yeah. yeah. So um, so, what are, what are your thoughts on um, for people who are coaches or people who are coaching themselves, which is probably the majority of people listening to this podcast? Um, mm. What do you think people should think about doing with trying to figure out if their training intervention actually works? Like. Um, well, I think one, one thing you, you can learn from science in that kind of lab-based approach is just like if you are, say, looking to test what, you know, routinely test what your, your, what your VO2 max is or your FTP, that if you can control as many variables as possible around that test, because if, if, you know, one time you do your FTP test, like, on a turbo without a fan and you know maybe not any not hydrate hydrated properly and the next time you do it and you're out you've got a mate racing you up a climb like of course you're going to do like 30 watts more but does that mean your you know your training has worked or does that mean it's just because you did it out on a climb and uh, you had the motivation of your mate pushing you on yeah. you know like it's i think just if, if you are going to test like decide decide how you're going to do it and just keep as many variables controlled so then you can like reduce the noise to actually find out if 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 something has changed then it's just my it's just this training intervention or equally yeah like when looking at your training as as your training volume also changed or is is, is literally all you've changed this one type of interval you've been doing but Mm -hmm. of course it's so hard in real life because when are you ever going to have two whole month or you know six week or two month period where everything is going to be controlled between between both of them and and equally like that's not even really the case because if you do the second one you're building on that foundation of fitness that you've done in the previous one yeah so you could almost only do it like this year i'm going to try after my base season doing threshold work and next year I'm going to try doing uh, VO2 max work after my base season but even then you've got the previous year of foundation so um, control as many variables as you can but then also appreciate that the variables that you haven't been able to control and how that might influence things. Yeah well what I what I typically see with people and this is one of the things that a lot of people ask me about is um, they're they usually find that they get to a plateau and whether it's their you know the training plan that they're using or whether it's a particular um training philosophy that they have um just there's there's something there that they have on good advice and good foundational principles 
um, but at some level, um, you know, it's it's almost like the theory supersedes the realized result, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, like they'll keep doing yeah, yeah, something that's that's that seems to be not working, despite the fact that like the theoretical it should, but in reality it's not. And so I think a lot of people have yeah. a hard time like breaking out of that rut and having a good pre-test, post-test routine might help quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, just just uh, keeping, and I mean, there's, of course, the testing, uh, as I've heard you speak about before, there's there's a lot, people can get very nervous, they can get, and there's a big psychological component, yeah. and people can start to think, maybe this is all I can ever, I can only ever do this power you know, this, my threshold can never get higher and methods like you say of going off, off field, taping over your power meter and just you know, things like that can be can be useful because actually in in yeah in some sports science studies that's how they, they do their time trials is that you're told when you have to complete a certain amount of kilojoules and you're to, all you're told is you've completed 25% and then 50 and then 75 and that's all the information you get and, and that can, maybe that would be a good uh, testing testing method for people who are stuck in a bit of a rut yeah. and think they can never raise their threshold higher. Well, that's an interesting one because I do something very similar with time trialists um, who need to work on pacing, um, which is which is some of them, not all of them, but um, it's like we'll pick a distance. I'll be like, go to your favorite forty k TT course near your house and. Uh, today's you know TT day like do a full dress rehearsal um, get your race wheels out get your race helmet out um, and uh, mm. do your same warm-up and sit down <laughs> for you know five eight minutes before you actually get on your bike yeah, do yeah. the same start um, and you know big like dress rehearsal day and your only feedback should be your distance and how you're feeling um, and if you need anything else like you know make it as much like race day as possible some people like to have power but some people it gets in their heads, um, and I have um, I have definitely more than one client who every time it comes time to test day, uh, no matter what the test is, they're way more nervous than they need to be by a lot, and yeah. sometimes that really gets into their head and their legs. It should get it gets into their legs. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you, your brain uses uh, a lot of glucose, doesn't it? So if you got too you know really overthinking it and really getting nervous, that literally is glucose going to your brain that you could spare for your legs so yeah. in fact I, I don't know if you heard it's quite a popular podcast uh Ingenigo Sam Milan did and he, he I never heard anyone say this before but that um actually meant part of the reason mental stress can deplete you is because if if you, it can you're because not only liver not only the liver can supply blood glucose but you can actually your muscles can release glycogen and not that can then be used by your brain if you're particularly stressed so you can think that you're doing all your carb loading right um whereas actually which was yeah you could be but you can actually deplete muscle glycogen by being stressed um mentally i, I assume that's through lactate efflux um because you cannot like a glycogen molecule itself is way too big to send it to the bloodstream. Um, there's no transporters that would handle anything like that size. Um, but I, I am assuming it's from, you know, lactate. Um, because when we are stressed, 
um, the, the hormonal cascade um, you know, switches us from rest and digest to fight or flight. And so mm. now not only are you uh, no longer building glycogen when you could be, like, because if you spend, yeah. um, you know, if you spend like days and weeks stress, you know, um, like, like my recent move, um, I was, I was extremely stressed for like three weeks straight. Um, and by the yeah. time I got here and settled in, I was like four or five pounds light compared to what I was before all that stress happened because I lost so much water weight um, and I wasn't doing anything to really like replenish it. I'm not, not that I really even could. Um, I mean, I yeah. could have eaten more. I could have drank more and had more salts, but um, you know, I've, <laughs> it's seriously taken me like a, like a week to get past that. Um, but you know, mm. the stress is very real in that respect and that definitely has a physiological effect. Um, and I forget exactly what the yeah. hormonal cascades are, but I, I'm assuming that's that's uh, glycogen related, um, and you know, uh, you know, increased um, you know carbohydrate utilization related. But um, you know, it could be, uh, it could also be one of those things where, because um, one of the things about stress is that um, you know some of the hormones that do the same things there would also release fatty acids. And so we could be yeah. burning more fatty acids as well, but I think it's mostly just the fact that we're not building glycogen and potentially we're not in that like rest and digest, which also includes build and recover um, kind of things. Yeah. But I, I need to do a lot more research on something like that. So uh, that's just me spitballing. Yeah. No, I, I'll, I'll go back into that because it, it was, yeah, it was, I'll go back into it. Is yeah, yeah. Well, because I think um, you know, because I well, because in, in Milan is from the Brooks School of Thought on lactate shuttling. Um, yeah. So, um, and I I have some thoughts on lactate shuttling. Um, I I want to mm. ask him directly about it. Maybe I'll ask him to be on the podcast someday. Um, I feel like I'm not smart enough to have him on the podcast because you know, I'm like I'm gonna ask him a question. And he's gonna like walk all over me, and I'm gonna oh, be like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, is is a you might have an interesting opinion on. Um, we talked about the, the pros and mostly cons of in, inside methods, mm -hmm. but um, I suppose other coaches using the the idea of that when you uh, sort of say for like doing under overs, you do your overs at like maximum lactate shuttling rate, which uh, <laughs> so like when. They say that around your yeah your maximum fat oxidation rate you're clearing lactate fastest, um, and does that does that mean it's the best way to train your ability to clear lactate? But because Inigo San Milan would say that it's all just about having yeah a stronger aerobic capacity so you can do it more, whereas like actually. Clearing lactate is not something that you need to train as an ability of itself. If you understand me? Um, yeah, I think um, so. Not something you have to practice deliberately. I think it might be something that needs some practice because I and I've I've never looked into this. This is just uh, me theorizing. So the, so the first thing mm. is I agree with Sam on that aerobic base is is paramount with that. Um, yeah. because doing a lot of riding, doing a lot of quality intervals, like threshold and sub-threshold intervals, 
um, that is going to greatly increase mitochondrial density. And the number one thing that we have to clear lactate is muscle mitochondria in our working muscles. And yeah. so, and not only that, but the working muscles um, that that clear the mitochondria that they themselves make are the same muscles that are at you know very high exercise intensities. The same muscles that clear. Uh, a lot of the lactate from the blood too. Um, so a muscle yeah. that is effluxing lactate can also be the same influxing lactate and oxidizing uh, both pools of from the blood and also the stuff in the cell. Um, and so that's also the thing that allows us to to oxidize fats is having high mitochondrial density. Um, and I think that on some level, if we are going to do over-unders or quote unquote lactate shuttling kind of stuff, um, I am guessing that it will, to uh, some degree, increase um, MCT4 transporters into the mitochondria and possibly on the cell surface to, to transport more, uh, more lactate. Uh, MCT standing for monocarboxylate and the lactate, of course, having one carboxyl group. Um, and so that's just in theory. I have not read any papers on it. Um, I don't know. But, you know, it seems like both would be the right way to do it. Um, Although would you say it's not pretty clear that one is clearly a lot more important than the other? Volume, yeah, volume. Yeah, like just having having the more mitochondria, regardless of what specific training you've done to achieve it, Mm -hmm. is clearly much more important than training a specific ability to clear lactate with lactate clearance workouts. Yeah, well, because the thing is, like, the real question is, why do we want to clear lactate? Right? Because yeah, I mean, that, that's another thing because it sort of advertises this lactate clearance is the ideal thing to do in the recovery between your intervals. <laughs> you know, say you're doing... Okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because then you clear the lactate faster, it's going to make your next... Well, exactly, this is how it's genuine inside spiel. Because uh, that's, that's, you want to clear lactate as fast as you can so that you're fresher for your next interval so, but, but uh, uh, obviously fatigue, so if it's there or not it doesn't matter no <laughs> exactly in fact it it, 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 it if it's a fuel so yeah so like why, why would you want to why would you want to drive it down as low as you can before you start your next your next effort and in fact even like with you know primers and optimization like yeah pr- like you know warm-up mm. um like part of the idea of that is to get your lactate level uh, you know, a, a certain amount above baseline before you start, so you're not starting with no lactate in your system. Uh, well, I so think try and well, that's one of those things that sounds like it's literally false, metaphorically true. Like having yeah. high lactate is irrelevant. We can give you an IV drip of lactate. Like who cares? Um, but yeah. what what it, what I think that's doing is making you work hard enough that you actually start to open local capillary beds. You actually start to increase uh, epinephrine production. You actually start to increase breathing rate. You actually start to um, you know, prime your sweat response so you can cool yourself for the hard work you're about to do. Um, you know, there's um, and a million other things that I'll, I probably am not remembering or am not aware of at this point. So, um, so it's, like, it's like you can make your entire worldview based around lactate but there's so much 
else with regards to so high much performance. else going on yeah yeah that like i think in some ways if it leads to good performances or leads to improved performances that's fine but i mean that doesn't always make it true um and i think um you know it's it's sort of interesting that um you know with the lactate stuff is that when we think about you know very basic like like how many how many people listening have done like cell bio um, and you take a bacterium and you you infuse a plasmid in it and then you expose it to a certain like sugar like arabinose or something and then that yields expression of blah 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 and therefore the bacteria grows under black light or glows under black light so um, it's it's one of those things where the presence of a certain thing can yield um, can yield a uh, a response because the cell goes, oh, we've got this thing, we might as well use it, we should make some transporters so we can actually utilize whatever. So that might be kind of where the lactate clearance thing comes from. Um, and that That's also kind of where the, if you eat more fats and reduce your carbohydrates, you're gonna be able to yeah, eat fats better say, yeah, kind of thing, because it does improve fat transporters, but that's only because you're eating so much. But, you know, with regards to lactate, um, I think one of the things that a lot of people uh, you know, maybe don't think about when they think about lactate and all this stuff is that, um, you know, Samalon, you know, has talked about how Pogachar has lower lactate values at higher power levels than just about anybody else. But, um, and it's, it's almost like, um, you know, well, anybody else he's tested, I guess. But I think a lot of that comes from just the fact that he's a genetic freak and he's got more mitochondrial density than just about anybody. And so he can use yeah. more lactate and fat at higher power values than anybody else. Um, so he can better uh, aerobically utilize all those fuels, whereas a lot of other people uh, probably can't. But it really still comes down to, well, that's part of it. And I think I think the other part of it's just, you know, what's your VO2 max and what's your what's your threshold? Um, hmm. And so it's, it's complicated, you know? There's no one thing that's going to lead to better performance. Uh, where were we going with this? I forgot. Because yeah, I'm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, you uh, were you were talking about like inside and lactate clearance and uh, lactate philosophy and stuff like that. Yeah, like why why you you don't need to do the recoveries between your intervals at your fat max zone. Oh god, that would be terrible. Um, because yeah. one of the things that I saw doing research for the phosphocreatine episode uh, that I think we all know kind of experientially is if you, and that actually we know from the, the critical power W prime model, is that if you are doing more work between efforts, you are reducing your yeah. recovery rate. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, so actually yeah, my good, yeah. good friends at university was doing uh, his, his PhD, which I, I think he's still just finishing this summer is about um, reconstitution of W prime. And, and so I, I know from him that there's still so much we don't understand about that. Um, and, and like what can help speed that up. And you know, both with like acutely and with different training interventions, because clearly some people like, um, um, like, because you can have um, models now, can't you, to, to model like, like on, on cycling analytics, I know that I use, you, you can have you know like a graph of what your W prime balance is, but of course it's it's kind of yes yeah, it's, it's not 
greatly accurate because everyone will reconstitute W prime in different at different speeds, mm -hmm. and and there's yeah there's so much and not understood about about what affects that and what type of training, if at all, can can make it can improve that. Um, yeah. Um, well, it, you know, experientially, I find that my athletes who just ride more, just blanket, just ride more, have yeah. way better yeah. repeatability. Um, and they have way better depth, even if all the other metrics stay the same. Um, or even if some metrics mm. drop, like I have a couple clients who compared, like who, before they were working with me, were doing a lot of polarized stuff. And so in WKO5, the MFTP is like, was yeah. X, right? And with me, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little more focused on, you know, endurance and repeatability and things that I am sure are going to get them better race results. And so not only do they actually yeah. have better race results, um, in some instances, their FTP is a little higher, uh, but in some instances, their FTP is actually like, you know, five or 10 watts lower. And as much as they don't like that, um, they have better race results and they have better fatigue resistance and better repeatability because we're focused on, you know, we're not focused on that one number. We're focused on kind of a holistic view of the performance. And while I always say, you know, yeah. higher threshold is better, like, you know, five or 10 watts, you know, I think that's a good trade-off for better performances and better endurance. Well, if you just tuck your elbows in a bit more and kind of get your head down, <laughs> that makes in most flat races that you get in the UK, that's going to make more difference anyway. Or get some aero socks. <laughs> yeah, new skin suit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually going to say something proper then. I can't remember now. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I was uh, saying so. Yeah, generally more volume being more aerobically fit is is going to be the main thing that improves your repeatability mm -hmm. and and but equally i'd say quite often still if you give an athlete say you're trying to improve their repeated sprint ability that will still improve after a block of doing repeated sprints oh yeah i mean because there it's like you know like i said before you kind of have to do everything um yeah and so because I remember um, the first year I actually coached myself, I did, I um, I had done a ton of just volume. Uh, and part of it was just yeah. meditative. I was, you know, thinking about my life and everything, and I take some time off of work. Um, and I also, when it came time to, well, I was I was getting closer to racing, and I I was I was whether I thought I was doing it on purpose or not, I don't think I was. I was doing a lot of. I was basically doing polarized training. Um, yeah. And I, I'd done very little threshold work. I was, and I, one day I kind of woke up and I was like, oh my God, I've got a race coming up in like, you know, six weeks. Um, I should probably start getting ready for yeah. race efforts. And so I started doing, um, you know, just hill reps and, you know, repeated sprints and um, that kind of stuff, anaerobic capacity type things. Um, and I got to the race and I, I, I was on great, great, great form. Um, I did. I think I did like two crits in a row, and like an elimination race in the crit course. Um, and I got better as I went on, and everybody else got more tired. <laughs> so, um, but I was definitely missing some threshold work, and I was like, oh man, I gotta work on this before the road races I've got coming up in the summer. Um, and so I think if I hadn't done those hard efforts, because it was like you know stuff like one minute all out, five minute rest, 
One minute allowed, five minute wrestling. Ten times. Absolute death for somebody like me. Um, I was also doing like five second <laughs> yeah. sprint, 25 second rest, 10 second sprint, 50 second rest. Um, I did not, I, did, I probably did like five middle intensity efforts between like January and March in the first race. Um, so, you know, and so, you know, race specific efforts plus volume helped a lot. And I think if I had done threshold and volume, it would have helped some, but not as much. Um, because that's just what the criterion was. But I knew for yeah. road races later, I was going to have to really work the threshold stuff because otherwise I was going to get shot out the back after, um, you know, whatever. But it's it's sort of like you need, you need everything, like I said. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, you need everything on the physiological side. You need, you need to be like, yeah. It's like also powerful aerodynamic and potentially if it goes uphill you have to not be too heavy mm -hmm. so it's like yeah there's just you, know, you have to be everything really to be fast yeah yeah so even yeah. with repeatability there's not like one answer um you know you have to no you have oh to yeah that's, that's that's where we were at. Yeah. yeah 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 this the, the same the same ability even something as niche as that mm -hmm. can be has, has so many like different ways you can achieve it and equally to get it super up like as optimized as it can be you can't just attack it from one angle. It's like you've got to, yeah, add each layer of the cake, if you like. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. Is there anything else in your mind before we uh, before we wrap this up? Um. I think. Uh, I mean, maybe you could edit edit this out but <laughs> I just just thought I want one point that might have been worth making more back towards when we we're talking about critical power yeah. is that um, one yeah and in, in that that lecture where we we're talking about the the zones is it was mentioned that you potentially could have like another zone which was above um, like MAP and MAP is something that sits even less well with me than critical power does because it is just complete all it means is something above critical power that's all I could say that MAP is it means it's something above that because literally you can be at VO2 max and doing absolutely anything as long as it's above critical power and you could probably even probably even at VO2 max and below critical power if you'd gone enough above it and not had enough recovery so mm -hmm. um, yeah I just thought that was another example of how you can well, I, yeah be be in i think that gets to exercise intensity domains because one of the definitions yeah. of going from the heavy to severe domain is that when you're in the severe domain um you have to hit vo2 max at some point yeah so if you've got a 60 minute tte at let's let's just call it ftp just to make it simple um and if you go you know, up 10 watts, you're you're now over the threshold. But if you don't hit VO2 max, suddenly you're not in the severe zone. Even though um, mm. metabolically, I would I would argue that you have you are past that transition point. Because I think critical power is looking for that transition point too. Um, yeah. But I I think that um, you know I think that it's it's 
we cannot really use it like that with, for everybody just as a blanket statement, uh, especially if we do like a three minute, 15 minute kind of, um, kind of two test uh, critical power calculation. Yeah. Um, Although I was just thinking back to that again, the one other way you could kind of have de rigorously define a zone above like a zone above that zone three in the three zone model mm -hmm. would be that uh, a power output that is so high that if you are that you can't keep it up for long enough to reach VO2 max. I think that's called the extreme domain, if I'm not mistaken. And which would be like extreme domain, extreme domain, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then how to actually test for that? Because I can imagine, depending on the type of athlete, that could be in some people like. Is something they can sustain for one minute whereas it could be something that or 30 seconds even in a pure pure sprinter whereas it could be like three minute power and and in, in someone who's yeah got a smaller anaerobic capacity um, and I guess then you could then call MAP the top end of that zone but then that's not what MAP is defined as so I, I, I just think the only real use of MAP would be if you keep it is is if if you if you do if you're doing a VO2 max test with you know measured um, properly in a lab with uh, measuring gas exchange, it it can have like internal validity if like everything is kept constant around it, which would have to be your cadence, your bike position, the test protocol, but other and you, and then you could even have like an efficiency of of what your, you know, how you, the ratio of your power to your oxygen cost at your VO2 right. max. But if, if everything isn't kept perfectly consistent, then it's meaningless. Because if you just, if you change your cadence when you're at VO2 max, or you change your bike position, or you change your test protocol, then that's all going to completely change what your MAP is and your even your your efficiency at VO2 max. So yeah. Um, or if you change exercise mode and um, and muscle yeah, yeah. Uh, muscle recruitment, like if you suddenly go from um, you know cycling to assault biking, which I think is the one with the, where you push the arms to, um, now you have yeah. muscle mass, and so that's going to effectively increase your VO2 max, even though your legs are consuming probably the same, if not a little bit less. Um, yeah. So it's so the question is like you know is it peripheral? Is it central? Um, but also you know with uh, with like a ramp test. You know, if we keep it in the right range to find, um, mm. you know, VO2 max, um, you know, this this comes from Hill in like what the 1920s, 27 or something like that, um, where uh, the definition is that you have to have a sufficiently large amount of muscle mass used, and you also have to yeah. find a plateau in the O2 uptake for an increase in work. But but the question is, does that does that O2 uptake yield what? is effectively the same power for everybody? And the answer is no, because now we're over threshold. So now we have anaerobic capacity to contend with as well. And so we cannot say that maximal aerobic power, you know, even from a ramp test is the same for everybody. It's not even gonna be the same for the person because there's um, the, uh, an Adami study that I've referenced like eight times in, this, in the podcast so far. It's like, that shows that um, depending on, that you can actually use the, critical power model in W prime to figure out exactly how long somebody's going to last at a ramp test and actually predict their uh, their you know finishing value. Um, yeah, basic aerobic capacity, yeah. 
yeah, and so um, so uh, there's to me at least there's really no such thing as VO2 max power because we can get somebody to VO2. No. I can get to VO2 max power at zero watts if I do a 30 second sprint and then I rest. Uh, like I'm yeah. sure I get to VO2 max for a little bit right after that. I'm breathing so hard. Um, and that's probably yeah. not going to be the case for you. So I think I think this is one of the things one of the disservices that strict definitions give us uh, with all this kind of stuff because we all kind of know what mm. we're looking for but it needs to be individualized to such a degree that no matter what definition we have it's like we can make it pretty broad and it's probably not going to capture everybody yeah yeah I mean um, yeah that's that's uh, I mean, even true with like, uh, yeah, LT one, isn't it? That it's it's probably not gonna not gonna get the right that the definition for a elite athlete is not gonna be appropriate for someone who's who's untrained and yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah and like, and because they'll it's it's not a real that there isn't there almost isn't anything true as a a, a true steady state that mm -hmm. you can. Because like you're gonna even below LT1, you'll eventually start decoupling and eventually start fatiguing and producing yeah. lactate at something that was below your LT1 eight hours ago. Or, or well, you know what's is. funny is I have um, I have a, a, a young athlete in um, um, let's see, where is he? he's in Belgium, um, and he uh, for a long time he was actually riding over LT1 on his endurance rides, and we're talking like five, six, seven hour rides. Um, no decoupling. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it wasn't much. It was just a little bit. But then one day yeah. he was like, oh my God, I'm, I rode a little easier today and I think I figured it out. I was riding a little too hard. Um, and suddenly we're like, he's actually recovering a lot faster now uh, from his efforts mm. and like we're seeing improvements where previously I was like, what is going on here? Um, and so we yeah, were trying yeah. a lot of different things, trying to figure it out. And that was it. Because like, you know, he wasn't decoupling at all and this is actually something that i see a lot in um in high performance athletes is uh you know if we look for decoupling in somebody like me uh we're gonna be able to find it pretty easily at just about any exercise yeah. intensity somebody like him it's gonna be really difficult to see so again like and um and also it, i think it's funny like my level of untrainedness is uh, is really interesting because i was doing another um investigation on myself for lt1 and I actually found that uh, my RPE and HRV, not not the HRV everybody's thinking of, it wasn't the, what is it? It wasn't the 0.5 or 0.75 or whichever one it is. Um, my HRV picked it up with my RPE, my LT1, better than lactate did. Lactate testing actually put me at, um, at, a little, at like 15, 20 watts higher than I actually felt it. Um, so I thought that was that was right. really really fascinating. So um, again, even with lactate testing, yeah. um, you know, somebody as untrained as me can pretty much violate the expectations. And I was um, and I was still below two millimole, which is usually I think the population average for untrained people at LT1. Um, yeah. And then even when you you know if, if you think you know what your LT1 is. Um, you still often find that get riding 50 watts below it and, and to do the same kilojoules is a lot less depleting than yeah. riding 20 watts below it. 
-hmm. So, and then you're almost starting to think, well, why is knowing my LT1 so much more useful than figuring out what just what type of intensity leaves me the most fresh and still gives me adaptations? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. Well, I think it's. Pretty I much. think that's part of um, part of the demand because if we find a threshold, people want to ride at that threshold. And one yeah. of the things that I find, and, and my athletes find as well, who are tracking this kind of stuff, is that LT1 actually changes with fatigue. Um, it effectively drops oh, as you get yeah. tired, and as you as you freshen up, yeah. it it goes up. Um, and so I think, uh, and my athletes who ride the most, they'll like report LT1 to me just by just by RPE. They're like, oh, I felt I felt it was here today. Um, like one of my guys yeah. was like, I feel like it's 300 watts now. And I'm like, that's really good. But if you look at his endurance rise, he's riding, you know, six, seven, eight hours. Um, it's not even close to 300 watts average for the whole thing because it's one of those things. Like he knows how to pace it. Um, he knows how to how to get all the adaptations without so much fatigue. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where um, I think having that experience versus having an expectation um, based yeah. on you know whatever scientific literature, I think is is super super critical to having a lot of success, and I think that's part of where uh, experience in training and racing is uh, is just as valuable as having a good scientific education. Yeah, I mean, there's I, I feel like having the education can help possibly shortcut and or inform inform that. And I feel like now I've got this education that it, it, it really does help inform both my own training process and my coaching. But like you said, that in isolation like is, is, is nowhere near sufficient. Like most of the other people on my course, I would say that would be no, if, without cycling experience, would be no better able to be a coach than some people who've not had any education in sports science mm -hmm. so yeah. like you say it's, yeah def i think i think having both is 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 the ideal scenario but, yeah i mean I, yeah. I agree but that's because i'm biased <laughs> um, yeah, yeah more more yeah. confirmation bias um but and, and you know it's funny because yeah. i've my education is in my, my degree is biology and i had a focus in biochem and evolution and so um and so my, my perspective on all this stuff is very different from yours. Um, but I think we get to the same point. And I, I think that's, that's really, really cool is that, you know, it's, this, it's kind of convergent mm. evolution, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I have, oh, I have one more question yeah. for you. I'm, um, I'm, sh I'm sure, because mm -hmm. um, it looks like you're in a cafe for your... <laughs> um, I'm in a, right? yeah, restaurant, cafe, hotel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't want you to overstay your welcome there, but um, I'm sure our listeners are going are <laughs> getting a little tired. Um, but I think uh, the last thing is uh, one of the two things that I was going to ask you earlier, um, and it's um, you know, do you have uh, an opinion or a take or any thoughts at all on people who overemphasize what has been scientifically validated? versus what we have experientially in the real world as coaches? Um, yes, definitely. Um, and I could, yeah, sort of speak and, like, yeah, mention certain 
people, yeah, coaches I know that... <laughs> no names, no names. Only, yeah, who, who, who only but do just, something if they, if they see it scientifically proven. But I'd say, like, if, if you wait for, like, something to be properly scientifically proven, you're waiting for a meta-analysis to be published, really, of, mm-hmm. of like, many years of research amalgamated. And, but, you know, if, if you're waiting that long... You know that that's that's twenty years, and you then you're behind the curve, and your career's already over. So like, you, you kind of <laughs> you have to just kind of if something works, you have to get on it, get on it, and start doing it quickly. Because um, like you know, say you wait. Good example, one my yeah my supervisor gave was um, it's, what, I don't know when when creatine come out as a supplement, and some athletes were using it at the Olympics. And, and say something, I'm, I'm probably getting this fact really wrong, but in the 100 metre final one year, like seven out of the eight athletes were on creatine and, and the one who wasn't was last. And but yeah, and so it was like, you had to be on it then to be able to compete. But if you'd have waited, you know, till creatine was uh, you know, a well-evidenced supplement with, you know, that, that it is now, with all the, um, you know, with, all, with a meta-analysis done about it, you, you'd, you'd be 50 and you'd be retired and you can't be an elite sprinter anymore. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like, yeah, you, you can't you can't wait till something's rigorously scientifically validated because it's, it's too late. Yeah, um, actually, I'm actually doing an experiment on creatine myself right now. Uh, which is I'm not supplementing with it, despite the fact that I am indeed a training sprinter. Um, and now that I actually live closer to track, I'm actually looking forward to actually competing like regularly for the first time since like I don't know, 2015 or something. Oh, fantastic! Uh, yeah, and yeah. Managing my injuries well, so um, you know. So, well, so what I'm me. actually going to do is I'm going to try to I'm going to wait for my performances on the track. So I'm going to get a couple times and wait for them to kind of level out a little bit. And then I'm going to supplement yeah, creatine. And, and after like four weeks, I'll just keep doing the same training and see if that actually uh, helps or if it hinders. Because I'm going to gain probably five pounds, maybe six from it. Um, and so I think I want to see if, if you know, because acceleration is a huge thing in track sprinting. So I want to see if that extra weight to accelerate is outweighed, so to speak, by, um, by being able to push the pedals a little longer and a little harder. Because the answer is I don't know. Yeah. I, I expect it will be, but I, I want to do this experiment for myself just because um, I don't know. I just it, it should it should be fine, but it's one of those things where you need to gut check yourself, you know. That I, yeah, I'd like it'd be interesting to see how I get on with that because yeah, sort of a, it's not been it's not been well uh, investigated really whether. In, in yeah, in different events, whether the the trade-off between the extra power and increase in weight, where, like yeah, whether it's worth it. Yeah, well, I would expect so, in, in really running a hundred meter dash, it would easily be worth it because you spend less time accelerating and more time at top speed than you know hmm. for you know for on the track. Like if we're going to do a standing start for two hundred fifty meters. Um, or 125, or if we're going to do a flying 200, uh, I expect those are going to be, um, you know, have slightly different outcomes. But uh, and it's just going to be end of one. But you know, I'll know, I'll yeah. know something, and I'll probably know at the end that um, I just didn't want to supplement creatine because I didn't want that number on the scale to be above 200 <laughs> anymore. 
Yeah. But anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. Um, all right. So we should wrap this up. Um, I actually have to go do a couple things. But um, where can people find you? Where can people get in touch with uh, Marinus Peterson and Kilowatt Coaching? Okay. So I've I've got um, yeah an Insta personal Instagram account um, for Marinus Peterson and my coaching page, which is. Yeah, I'm just starting to build up some posts on there. Is uh, yeah, kilowatt coaching just again on Instagram. So um, uh, I'm trying to keep the simple on on the one platform at the moment. Um, in well, in, in 2020, I did make some YouTube videos, which are sort of some of them perhaps so bad you could almost find them funny. Um, I haven't made any since or recently, but I'm hoping now that I'm fully focusing on my my racing and my coaching that I'm going to try and make some some proper content and take that all a bit more seriously alongside the social media so but as of now I'm I'm I'm, I'm coaching I'm taking on new people and uh, yeah I'd, I'd be interested to yeah to, yeah. to um, hear from you yeah. and um, I, I think I think for a future YouTube video an idea would be to open it with you trying to do, was it was it a kickflip on the scooter? I I was I wasn't even trying to do anything. This is how tragic it was. I was just trying to go down a ramp oh. without falling off. Oh, um, well, being being forced to go down a ramp and ended up falling off and, yeah, and so breaking your ankle. And then the next, then it should cut to ankle. you on a podium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nothing in between. Nothing in between. Yeah. How it started, how it's going. <laughs> Um, yeah. That would be good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I wish you a speedy recovery, and um, I am really excited to, to actually start working with you uh, once you are out of your yeah. past and you yeah. can ride a bike again. Hopefully, four weeks' time. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Can't wait. All right, man. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, cheers, uh, Cody. Oh, so uh, yeah. people will get in touch with you. Uh, just DM on Instagram would be. Uh, oh, so uh, yeah, uh, yeah. If you just yeah D DM me on Instagram. Um, yeah, that's that's the best way. Um, I should should be able to get back to you all pretty quick at the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, fantastic. Um, thanks for coming on. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Enjoyed that. Yeah. All right. So that was my interview with Marinus Peterson, and um, obviously, I think people are gonna want to follow him on Instagram at Kilowatt Coaching, and also Marinus Peterson. So reach out to him if you want to get in touch with him, and of course, reach out to us if you want to get in touch with us. Empirical Cycling on Instagram, and of course, Empirical Cycling at Gmail .com for just the old-fashioned email. So. Um, if you have any coaching consultation inquiries for us, please let us know. Uh, we are always taking on new athletes, of course. And if you want to consult, uh, we will, you know, our time is your time. Please reach out for one of those. Those are actually a lot of fun for us and a lot of fun for a lot of people. And um, all the feedback I've gotten so far from people who've had a consult with us uh, have, has been uh, incredibly positive. So um, thank you all for all of those over the years, of course. Uh, and now, of course, the usual stuff. Uh, if you want to donate to the show, empiricalcyclingpodcast.com slash donate. We have show notes up on the website under the podcast episodes. And, of course, I have uh, tagged Marinus on Instagram. So if you want to go follow him, that's an easy way to do it. Uh, and, of course, um, we have weekend AMAs up on the Instagram. And uh, with that, we'll be back next week, hopefully with a Wattstock, if I can finish it in time once Kyle is actually back from his conference. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, as always. And uh, we'll see you next time.